Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Welcome everyone. And my name is Grant Guilford, the Vice Chancellor of Victoria University, New Zealand's globally ranked capital city university. And it's my great privilege to welcome Treasury Secretary and Chief Executive Gabrielle McClough to Victoria University. Mr McClough's lecture today focuses on the need for economic policy to enhance resilience to systemic risks, to sustain social cohesion, to increase the growth potential of our economy, to improve societal and intergenerational equity, and to improve people's well-beings. As daunting as that list might sound, it gives us a very good sense of how important public policy is to all of us. In light of these wide-ranging expectations of public policy, Gabrielle will be arguing that economic and social policy are no longer discrete, but they are closely demarcated fields, but instead demand an interdisciplinary approach. Put simply, the world is too complicated and the challenges facing our society too great to expect simple, one-dimensional models to have all the answers. So please welcome uh, Gabrielle McClough. Mihi mai, kite whare, mihi mai, kite iwi, ena mana, ena reo, ena waka, ena rangatira, mihi mai ra. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Grant, for that introduction. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, the personal and professional links between uh, the Victoria University and the Treasury are, uh, are strong and long-standing. Um, a lot of people at the Treasury studied at uh, Vic and are Vic alumni, and each year more join us um, as graduate analysts and in other positions. And of course, uh, we've got Treasury alumni at uh, Vic, um, Professors Bob Buckle and Norman Gemmel and uh, Girol Karajoyu, um, to name just a few of them. We've benefited from their thought leadership um, in the areas of public finance, economics and public policy, and clearly the university values it too. Um, and much of their, uh, their thinking has contributed to what I'll be uh, talking about today. I'll talk about the how the focus of public policy should be on enabling a more prosperous, sustainable and inclusive New Zealand um, now and into the future. I want to discuss how New Zealand can invest in sustainable improvement in our well-being, in particular through growing our human capital, our natural capital, our social capital and our financial and physical capital. So that's a formidable uh, goal for public policy to achieve. The challenges are many, uh, they're difficult, and they're not just economic. The discipline of economics has brought a lot of good to the world, but like any healthy discipline, it recognizes that it has to challenge itself and grow. And to solve society's most wicked problems and make the most of opportunities, we need to continue our good efforts to apply an open mind, long-term thinking, and a multidisciplinary approach. So let me start with one of those opportunities. Our country is in comparatively good shape with a solid economic foundation to build on. The New Zealand economy has been performing well over the past four years relative to both the potential 
growth rate of the economy, which is around 2.7%, and uh, relative to most advanced economies. So over this period, our economic growth rate has averaged 2.8%, while the uh, average growth rate of the OECD has been around 1.7%. And just yesterday, we heard that our unemployment rate was 4.9%, and our participation rate was 70.1%. And of course, we've seen the Crown's books return to surplus, debt kept under control, and New Zealand in the position to start rebuilding our buffers against future shocks. And these are commendable achievements, and uh, you know, commendable achievements in a very challenging environment, and we should recognize that and celebrate it. Uh, there are, there are uh, no more than a handful of countries that can do that. But while we have earned the right to feel good about the current situation and recent past, as policy advisors, we also need to continue to keep a focus on the medium to long term. We need to look as much to lifting the economy's long-run average growth rate, one of the main sources of a sustainable increase in our collective well-being. As we do on worrying about whether the economy is operating at or close to its short-term potential growth rate. So there are two fundamental questions I want to address today. Firstly, are we doing enough long-term thinking? And if and when we do, how are we approaching it? And second, are we learning from and adapting to our experiences as we move through time? If I take media commentary as an indicator, it does look like we're spending a lot of time and energy on analyzing whether the economy is operating at or close to its current potential growth rate and whether inflation is or is not responding to lower interest rates. In a way, that's understandable given the role media commentary plays in re reporting on factors that could have an impact on financial markets. And of course, it's important that we scrutinize the current cyclical position in New Zealand and elsewhere. The downside is that we see far less emphasis and effort on understanding how we can lift the sustainable growth rate of the economy, whether we're making good investments as a community, and what the changing global environment means for our living standards. In short, we don't appear to be spending enough time thinking about how to invest in lifting intergenerational well-being on a sustained basis. Now, perhaps I shouldn't take media commentary as an indicator. Or perhaps it's just inev it's, it's an inevitable feature of life that we think about the here and now rather than the future. But public policy can't afford to limit itself in this way. And back in August, the Prime Minister commented that one of the most valuable things that officials can do is filter out some of the noise of social media and the relentless 24-hour news cycle and help ministers focus on long-term considerations. Now, underpinning the long-term growth rate of an economy and are a range of fundamental factors, some of which don't get much time in the public spotlight. These include the quality of political, economic, and social institutions, the quantity and the productivity of the workforce, the quantity and quality of the human and physical capital stock, the availability of land and natural resources, the state of technical knowledge, the creativity and skills of entrepreneurs and managers, and for a small open economy, 
our ability to connect our people, our ideas, our trade and our investments with the rest of the world. These are all valid potential targets for public investment because they have significant public good attributes. So how does the Treasury approach the consideration of what matters for the long term? We start with the fundamentals of what we're here to do. The Treasury sees its job as improving the living standards of New Zealanders, helping people live better lives now and into the future. In other words, to increase people's well-being on a sustained basis. That, provided, that provides the frame for our long-term thinking, not a narrow focus on economic growth per se, which is very important, but only one source of well-being. Using such a frame reinforces the need for an integrated and multidisciplinary approach to economic, social and environmental policy. I should say that we do not judge how people, people should be living their lives. We're not a curtain-twitching neighbour uh, or the nosy relative at a family reunion who asks why you're not married with kids yet. Our focus is on expanding the opportunities and capabilities of people to live the lives they have reason to value. We also care a great deal about making sure that we have institutions that motivate people to increase their capabilities and that we have incentives in place that convert opportunities into outcomes that increase well-being. Undeniably, well-being will be significantly and positively affected by improvements in people's material living conditions. But we also know that there are other dimensions of well-being that are not very highly correlated with material conditions. As the Beatles once said, money can't buy me love, and they were right. Based on extensive international research, we do know that the so-called domains of well-being are good enough for the practical purpose of influencing policy decisions. These are well summarized by the components of the OECD's Better Life Index, which are classified into two broad categories. Firstly, quality of life, based on things like health status, work-home balance, education and skills, social connections, civic engagement and governance, environmental quality, personal security and subjective well-being, and second, material conditions, such as income and wealth, jobs and earnings, and housing. The things that need to be in place to promote well-being are the capital stocks which collectively comprise comprehensive wealth. Human capital, including education and health, natural capital, social capital, including culture, and physical and financial capital. I like to describe this comprehensive wealth as our economic capital, although I know some prefer to see the latter phrase used more narrowly. That's probably enough on the theory behind sustainable well-being, so let me turn to what's actually been done about it. In the last few years, you may have heard ministers and others in central government talk about the investment approach and wondered what it's all about. Well, in my view, it's at the heart of modernizing policymaking. The investment approach to policy focuses on what we should be investing in and how to achieve a sustainable improvement in our collective well-being. The areas we invest in, how we invest in them, and how these investments are funded, for example, by borrowing or taxing, have very significant implications for the level and distribution of intergenerational well-being.
And these decisions are by no means straightforward. At the very least, we need to recognise that there are interdependencies between the outcomes of various investments. As an example, take a look at education. We believe that investing in education generates economic, social and environmental benefits. It raises skill levels and hence productivity. It is also arguably one of the most effective ways of raising awareness of the environmental consequences of human actions. And of course, it broadens access to opportunities and helps those in persistent disadvantage, thus enhancing social cohesion. So undoubtedly, it is one of the most important investments we can make in improving well-being on a sustained and intergenerational basis. We need to be able to compare the long-term well-being impact of investing in education through all these channels, and no doubt others, with the well-being impact of investing the same dollars on, say, building a road, investing in conservation projects, or investing in increasing our cybersecurity, and so on. The key point to note is that the metric of comparison should be long-term well-being. And if we are to do a good job of assessing the well-being effects of one investment choice against several other worthy choices, then we need the collaboration of multidisciplinary teams bringing their economic, environmental, social, psychological and other perspectives to bear on policy design and delivery. It's hard, but it's happening. There is a rich and growing literature on using subjective and objective well-being metrics to do cost-benefit analysis in terms of the long-term sustainable well-being impacts of policy options. We are actively exploring ways of incorporating such tools into our policy advice and cost-benefit analysis. The Treasury's own cost-benefit analysis tool, which we call CBAX, is a very good example of an attempt to value non-market goods and services. If all this sounds like a tricky job for policymakers, it gets trickier still. An additional challenge we face is highlighted by the implications of complexity theory for designing and implementing policies. The economy, society and the environment are all complex systems that are constantly inter inter interacting with each other. All we can hope for is to invest in economic, environmental and social infrastructures, including institutions, that increase opportunities and build resilience to manage the consequences of radical uncertainties. It's about being prepared for the unknown unknowns. And I should add that part of this preparation is making sure our institutions are fit for at least the next 25, 30 or 40 years. If we simply focus on preserving institutions, we may in fact be weakening them. The bigger and more complex the problems we face, the greater the temptation to tighten one's grip on decision making. In fact, what we learn from complexity theory is that the optimal response to increasing complexity especially when it comes to decisions relating to social investment outcomes, is exactly the opposite. It calls for more devolution of responsibilities and funding, supported by more investment in capability building in the devolved areas, but packaged with very tight specification of outcomes to be delivered. 
So I'll leave complexity theory there and move on to a higher magnitude of complexity, which is people. If we agree that the purpose of public policy is to ensure government's contribution supports sustainable improvements in people's lives, we can focus policy towards supporting people and communities in their efforts to raise their living standards. So what does this all mean in practice from a public policy perspective in general and for the investment approach in particular? The focus of public policy should be on governing and investing on behalf of people today and into the future towards, firstly, enhancing resilience to systemic risks, second, sustaining social cohesion, third, increasing the growth potential of the economy, fourth, improving equity across society and generations, and finally, ensuring sustainability of well-being as people go about their daily business of living and improving their lives. And these dimensions are ones that Treasury considers in its living standards framework when we assess policies. Government strives to take a system view. A system approach underpins the direction the public service has been moving in since the Better Public Services report in 2011. And it reflects the fact that central government is well positioned to observe and monitor the system dimensions that influence our collective well-being. It also has system-level instruments that can help make a difference, some of which are about devolving power and using the energy of communities. At the centre, technology enables us to collect and share information on what various communities are doing to improve their lives. We also have the analytical capabilities to assess what works and does not but we need to do the hard work of converting that potential into practical initiatives through appropriate investments in economic, environmental, and social infrastructures. A critical ingredient of these infrastructures underpinned by social capital is networks. Public policy can play a critical role in making networks function better. I believe that to do that, the state sector firstly needs to be more flexible in response to evidence, and second, needs to be focused on outcomes, not delivery lines. What would then do, be, then, what would then be likely to see is better coordination and greater efficiency and effectiveness. So let's examine social investment to think about what better coordination and greater efficiency and effectiveness might look like. For example, I've been told that there are 83 social service agencies of all sorts operating in fielding and that many people in fielding would like to have a one-stop shop service. But if we want to focus on better outcomes for people, it's not just a question of whether or not there should be a one-stop shop. The bigger question is whether or not funding almost seven dozen NGOs is the most effective way to deliver the services people need. The investment approach is not only about generating good public policy ideas, it's also about effective and efficient policy implementation and delivery so that good ideas actually result in improved outcomes. This is precisely why better coordination of community, regional and central activities and investments is so critical. In practice, 
policy design and implementation should be people-focused. We should worry both about our investment in services to people as well as our investment in relationships with them. And thinking more broadly, better coordination and greater efficiency and effectiveness may also be a critical part of the solution to the so-called productivity paradox. The ultimate source of productivity increases is the efforts of individuals working together in their various capacities to improve their lives. We cannot second guess how this will happen, nor can we manipulate it. What we can do is observe and support. Through reducing the cost of co cooperation and coordination, the emergent social and business initiatives towards the wider good. Our primary focus should encourage investing in, oppor in opportunities and capabilities and build resilience to systemic risks. This, especially the resilience building dimension, brings me to the second fundamental question that I referred to at the very beginning of this talk. Are we learning from and adapting to events as they unfold? For example, one of the main events of the last 10 years has been the global financial crisis. This was system failure par excellence. It showed us that a combination of placing too much weight on the wrong indicators, guided by misspecified models, could lead to disastrous policy decisions affecting millions of lives. These models ignored the critical role of financial markets and networks. The policy prescriptions they led to misjudged how complex systems work. They resulted in coordination and communication failures, among other things. People are still trying to understand the lessons from the GFC. One area of learning which has had international attention is the critical role of better coordination of fiscal, monetary, financial, and broader macroeconomic policies in order for those policies to be implemented effectively when one of them faces constraints. It can be the difference between a well-conducted orchestra playing in symphony and 90 disorganized musicians creating a cacophony. This area has been an area of focus for uh, the IMF and the G20 since 2008. I should emphasize that New Zealand was one of the countries that coordinated fiscal and monetary policy effectively over the course of the GFC. Fiscal policy supported monetary policy through the crisis by being stimulatory when needed and then uh, contractionary once the economy was recovering. But that doesn't give us an, an excuse to cut class and uh, not worry uh, when experience delivers uh, different lessons and poses questions, including on policy coordination. And we should also make sure we learn the lessons of putting too much weight on simplified economic models. There are a few examples of the types of policy coordination that may be needed to deliver outcomes that can lift our well-being for the long haul. So you know, here are three of them. Building on what I said earlier, my first example relates that the coordination of financial, monetary, uh, prudential, and fiscal policies towards not only keeping the economy operating close to its current growth potential, by doing so in a way that does not cause harm to the growth potential of the economy. Indeed, it can enhance it. International experience over the last 10 years, and maybe more, casts increasing doubts about the effectiveness and efficiency of monetary policy alone 
in managing the economic performance relative to its current growth potential when it is adjusting to a large structural shock. In fact, relying on monetary policy alone to do that job risks the longer-term growth potential of the economy as well by leading to the misallocation of resources towards investments such as residential investment that are comparatively less productive in terms of generating wealth and well-paid jobs. And equally important are the consequences of such a policy on well-being across society and generations. We know that as interest rates rise towards more normal levels, a lot of low-income people who have overborrowed get severely hurt. Would better coordination of fiscal, monetary and financial prudential policy, especially the physical, social and environmental infrastructure investment component of fiscal policy, help the economy's performance over the cycle, as well as help lift the economy's sustainable growth rate? How could we achieve that better coordination? My second example relates to the interface between broader economic policies and infrastructure investment and regional economic policy. The importance of coordination around housing, transport and water infrastructure may be obvious, but let's look at tourism, which at the moment is one of our biggest earners. Tourism growth, if managed well, can keep generating substantial economic growth in New Zealand. But to extract most value from it on a sustainable basis, the tourism footprint needs to be better spread across the country. That's going to need deliberate and coordinated promotion of attractive New Zealand tourist destinations around the world, supported by investments in infrastructure across the country so that they can accommodate the needs of more tourists while taking some of the load of currently popular tourist destinations. And a third example relates to the combination of environmental, economic and social policies. There's an ongoing debate in New Zealand between environmentalists and business people about the merits or otherwise of economic growth. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting at all that being an environmentalist or a business owner is mutually exclusive. One question being debated actively is whether we can keep increasing our milk production without causing damage to the environment. The question tends to be presented in a way that, in my view, is a false and unnecessary dichotomy. The right mix of incentives can encourage a switch to the use of cleaner technology, higher value added milk products, and overall increasing economic growth on a sustainable basis. If also supported by investment in education and new skills, it would also enhance the skill base and productivity of our wider workforce. And finally, consider the mix of social investment, fiscal and economic policies. Targeting the most at-risk children of our society with education, housing and family support initiatives is first and foremost about improving the quality of their lives and opening up opportunities. It will at the same time increase equity, productivity and economic growth while also reducing the present value of medium to long-term fiscal costs on society. The point of these examples is to reiterate that a policy framework that focuses on increasing our collective well-being on a sustainable basis requires a mix of complementary economic, social and environmental policies. And a further point I'd like to make is that policy design needs to be complemented by outcomes-based policy implementation to have any lasting impact. It's got to make 
a real difference in the real world. Or as someone once said, great ideas need landing gear as well as wings. In my view, the types of wicked problems we are having to deal with can have a better chance of success if they are addressed by an integrated approach to public policy design and delivery. So in summary, I come back to the importance of learning from experience. A system that learns from and adapts to knowledge, whether from successes or failures, needs to respond through all channels, reviewing and revising economic theory and economics teaching, extending uh, policy models, better coordination of policies, adopting the expertise of a broad range of disciplines in policy design and delivery, and learning the lessons from both successful delivery and implementation failures. We need to embrace complexity and act accordingly. As Keynes once said, the difficulty lies not in the new ideas, but in escaping from the old ones. Escaping can indeed be difficult, but it can also be exciting. For those of us developing economic policy advice, it's about taking the knowledge we have and building on it, incorporating thoughts from other areas of expertise and drawing on the work of economists who are pushing economics into the field of the human science that it actually is. Growing our economic capital and investing in sustainable improvements in our well-being, which is the objective of economic policy, requires a multidisciplinary approach to solving economic and social problems. And there are signs that all this is happening around the world. We are in a new era of policy frameworks, and I'm proud to say that the Treasury's Living Standards Framework is at the forefront of economic thinking. And we want to stay at the leading edge, working together with others. In particular, I'd like to see universities, both their students and their staff, play a leading role in developing these multidisciplinary frameworks, creating momentum for a redefinition of how we design and deliver policy and how we create feedback loops that help to ensure effective implementation. And I hope whatever sphere you're operating in, you'll be enthusiastic participants in this collective effort. Thank you very much. To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. <laughs>